I'm Dr. Jason Bechta, and this is Out of the Basement, a podcast dedicated to practical radiation medicine. And this was supposed to be an episode about mechanisms for how low-dose radiotherapy is used in benign indications, specifically in osteoarthritis. And that's where it started, and it ended a long time later, uh, several, many hours later, with me reading the doctoral dissertation of an art history student on art installations in the MoMA. I'm going to back the story up a little bit from there. So just to recap a little bit about myself, I first got interested in radiation and radiation biology and radiation oncology by accident. I went to the MD-PhD, now MSTP program at Virginia Commonwealth University and had to do lab rotations before the first year of medical school, before M1. And it just so happened that at VCU at the time, and maybe still, but I'm not sure, at the time there was Ross Mickelson, who was a professor in the Department of Radiation Oncology. He was a PhD, and he was the co-director of the MD-PhD program. And as fate would have it, I ended up doing rotations in his lab before I even really started medical school. This was back in 2008, and I, through that experience was also down in the basement of the Massey Cancer Center. And the first radiation thing I was ever a part of was doing partial breast brachytherapy. I just distinctly remember that must have been in like May or June of 2008, just all those catheters. So I just fell into it quite by accident. And then later on that year, a more senior student in the graduate phase gave a presentation on DNA damage response and proteins and signaling and blah, blah, blah. And I had never seen anything like that before. And I just fell in love with it. And that's how I ended up going into doing my PhD in radiation biology and then stuck with it and did radiation oncology. So it was all by accident. And then for arthritis came about because my father-in-law had really severe bilateral knee osteoarthritis, so severe. I don't remember that last, the last time that guy wore pants because pants hurt his knees. So he was always in shorts, even when we were in New Hampshire and it was minus 20 out. And then he chose to have bilateral knee replacements and basically refused painkillers. And that was the most terrifying experience I had ever seen. I, woof, that's rough just every time I think about it. And then additionally, my wife and I, mostly driven by my wife, have consistently owned large breed dogs, a couple Great Danes. And large breed dogs generally have issues with hip dysplasia. So they also have very bad arthritis and all these adventures with carprofen and glucosamine special science diets and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, it's all by accident that I fell into all this. All of that is to say that when I started doing the research into just making cute little graphics for mechanisms for arthritis, I was really blown away. And I've seen this before and skirted around, but I've never really sat down with intent to really look at all the evidence and try to make like concise graphics and try to communicate this through a podcast, because it is pretty hard. I try to make, I know the previous episodes are kind of some dense on like the IGRT and stuff, but my interest and my love is always trying to break down what are traditionally considered complex topics and make it so everyone can understand. And to do that, you really need to actually know the material backwards and forwards. So when I sit down and do these sort of silly graphics or podcasts or whatnot, it actually takes quite a lot of effort. And I haven't yet done that with the arthritis sort of molecular mechanisms. And I was really overwhelmed by the volume. There's just like a lot. And because, you know, there's some things out there where the science isn't that great or the medicine isn't that great. And so there's a lot of controversy around it. 
And part of my interest with this and how confusing I find the low-dose radiotherapy is just how accepted it is in, in other parts of the world and how commonplace it is and just it was non-existent here. And I just happened upon it, reading it on the internet. And so prior to, I paused while I was working on this graphic and I decided, what happened? Why did we not continue with this in America? If it's so widespread and so accepted, especially in places like, my favorite again is Germany, where Germany treats upwards of 50,000 people a year for benign indication and two thirds of that is like arthritis. So what happened? And that was a rabbit hole that I, I was not prepared for. Being that I did my PhD in radiation biology. I'm pretty familiar with the topic. I think I own three editions of Hull now, and I actually taught the sections of the radiation biology course at VCU during grad school. I, I, it was supposed to be to the, both the physics residents and the physician residents, and the physician residents didn't really show up, which I can't really begrudge them of that because I also did not attend class, but we'll let that go for now. But I'm pretty, pretty familiar with rad bio. And even for me, really my main experience, I think we all get the same sort of glossing over of history of radiation biology. And I, I know my favorite picture will always remain the one about the fractionation and the goat testicles in the, in the hall book with the, or maybe it's a ram, whatever, the ram and there's the Eiffel Tower in the background and the ram wears the bray and there's big testicles that are getting lightning bolts, which always represents radiation, but there's always that. And then I think there's just a one or two sentence thing about how Radiation used to be used, it used to be viewed almost as like a cure-all, like a, back in when it was first discovered. And then there's, it was discovered that there's side effects and other problems, so that kind of fell by the wayside. And the story that everyone hears, one, I remember hearing about ankylosing spondylitis from even M1, M2, how, and that was portrayed as it was very negative, where that we used to use radiotherapy for ankylosing spondylitis. And then of course the, uh, the radium dial painters, which I'll talk about in a little bit, but I think that's probably the most common thing that we all hear about. And I know like when I was studying for red bio boards and things, the radium dial painters were the ones that were really brought up. But beyond that, I don't really know what happened. And so when I just decided to go back, I guess I've been working on this for a day or two now and look back. One thing has always struck me is how quickly they went from, and by the William Rentkin and all those people, but so X-rays were discovered in 1895, and then basically they started using them medicinally in 1896, or I don't know, it was a couple of months. It's like insanely fast if you think about it. And if you go back and see how widespread it became, I don't know if there's really anything like it that I've ever seen elsewhere, but it was just so fast from the discovery of X-rays to that's used in humans. And I really do think that it was really regarded as a cure-all, which is always bad, Like you can't do that. I think, I feel like we do that a lot where people just glom onto things or glam, whatever that word is. They just latch onto things. And then we find out, hey, maybe we should dial this back. Maybe this isn't as good as we thought. And that was definitely the case with radiation. The term, and I'll put the, I made uh, slides for this. They're not good slides in that they're not, they're more for me, but there are a lot of snippets of papers. So sorry about that. I'll post them on Big Share and Twitter, but they're not good in that they're not, they're just like papers, but so, sorry. So this is where in, in researching this, I found the term radiophobia, which was kind of this whole thing. And looking back on the culture of how radiation therapy is viewed in America. And there's been some really interesting stuff by Canadian is how I got into it. But the guy who did the low dose radiation for Alzheimer's, which I think many of us have heard about, but so if you go back and read some of these papers, it's, it reads like a conspiracy theory. So I'm going to, I'm going to have to be cautious about this because I feel like I don't want to get sucked into some other stuff. I just, um, this is more for, from like a 
in my professional opinion sort of deal. So I'm going to dance around this a little bit. But so obviously there was the known side effects of radiation therapy because the radium biopainters that took place in the 20s and 30s. And then there's a couple other cases like with the people used to ingest these little radium capsules and celebrity at the time took like five grams, some ridiculous amount of radium and had problems with it, obviously. So like the health effects of radiation were known or at least too much, but too much anything. Like if you have too much oxygen, too much water, too much anything will, will not do well for you. But radiation was still viewed favorably in, in America and much of the world. And then obviously we had World War II. So World War II, Manhattan Project, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, all those things, all those terrible things. And that really changed the the culture of it. And, and importantly, so that it really all happened together. So you had Manhattan Project and World War II that was in the mid forties. And then you had the start of the Cold War and you have the Cuban Missile Crisis in I believe 1962. And then just all this sort of radiation panic or not necessarily panic, but just this fear. And then there's actually, if you Google the phrase radiophobia, you can read about some of this stuff. But very interestingly, I didn't realize this part of the thing. In the 1950s, there was a guy named Detlev Bronk, who was the president of the National Academy of Sciences. He was at Hopkins. He was also the president of the Rockefeller Foundation, which is Rockefeller University. Uh, things that you couldn't really do. Now, this guy held like every position imaginable that, but I don't think that we would be allowed to do this these days, but, and I assume that this doesn't really need to be clarified, but just in case, John Rockefeller was into oil and gas a little bit. The early days of the funding, and I think even to this day, but Rockefeller Foundation was founded or funded by stocks in the company. But to say there was an interest in the Rockefeller empire doing well for the foundation to do well is an understatement. But so you have this guy who is the president of Rockefeller Foundation, president of the National Academy of Sciences. And this speech was given basically talking about how a nuclear energy could provide clean, safe, peacetime, blah, blah, blah. Basically trying to change the narrative on um, America's stance in the world and our use of uh, nuclear power and energy. And the National Academy kind of convened this biological effects of atomic radiation committee or Bayer genetics panel. It met in November of 1955. And then based on some interesting research in June, 1956 recommended that the United States adopt the linear no threshold dose response model to assess risk of radiation induced genetic mutations instead of what was previously doing, which was the threshold model, which basically said that below a certain dose, it was very unlikely that there'd be at least genetic alterations or carcinogenesis, the cause of cancer, causing cancer, you would need to hit a certain dose before that happens. So the linear in our threshold basically says that any radiation above background radiation is bad, period. And this was based on fruit fly research. So I didn't realize this at the time, and I've heard this recently of people in the rad bio space and medical physics and stuff talking about how the linear no threshold model is problematic. And I didn't quite look into that. But in 2015, there were some people went back and dug into the basis of where that came from. So there was one, and there was a 10-year study of 70,000 children of the survivors of the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which showed no hereditary damage. I'm pretty sure even I was still taught, although they're trying to change this, but in, in certainly some of the textbooks, that there's a, there was always this model of a risk estimate where if you were exposed to excess radiation that your children would have genetic effects. And it's now been so long. I remember studying this for boards, which was not that long ago in the grand scheme of things, and I can't remember, but 
there's like a heritable risk. And so that kind of really didn't bear out where 70,000 children of the people who were Hiroshima and Nagasaki didn't really show any hereditary damage. So that was not supported by the data. The other one was this incidence of leukemia among atomic bomb survivors. It's worth a read. It's in 2015. And I think it's Edward Kelparisi is the either first or senior author on it. But um, they found when reviewed in 2015 that the original work inappropriately lumped together control groups. So by lumping together these groups of exposure zones and whatnot, it artificially inflated the risk um, of radiation and that if you didn't lump together control groups and separated them out on exposure zone appropriately, the risk of leukemia development after exposure to, in this case, the atomic weapons, but of excess radiation, it has to be at least 1.1 gray of radiation exposure before you have a risk of developing leukemia. And so that, that was really earth shattering to me at least. And now it makes sense as to why I keep hearing rumblings about this, but I just, I've been a little busy over the past several years. So I haven't had a chance to dig back into the research that took place in the 1950s. And so really this was like the start of it where I would guess World War II was really the start of it. But so we had radiation discovery and it's used as a cure-all, which is obviously whenever you have snake oil salesmen and stuff, there's problems and stuff, but generally radiation was okay. And then with the atomic weapons and then the publication of this report, backed by the faith and power of the United States government, basically saying that there was no safe level of radiation exposure. It was in the 50s. And then again, Cuban Missile and then uh, Chernobyl, Three Mile Island, Fukushima, all these things. And there's just this pervasive sort of fear of radiation in America. And so digging back in it, and now in where I was reading these things, these glossed over where there's this statement in these papers, it just it's really big now. And I know it's really trendy to say, but always checking the statements of people is very important fact finding. So when I was reading these papers, this high between this guy, Detlef Bronk being president of Rockefeller Foundation and the president of the NAS was repeated several times. So I dug into this because that seems that's a little bit stretched. So in trying to find this, I had forgotten. I remember hearing documentaries about this. We're obviously now in 2022 and we're far removed from the power and influence of the people like Rockefeller or the Rothschild or Vanderbilt or all these people who have fortunes that we could not even imagine in, in a world without the internet. And it's just hard for me to envision what it was like back then. But there's a lot of really interesting things about the Rockefeller Foundation and its influence in the Cold War and its influence on global culture and politics. If you go into kind of history and art, the literature, there's an awful lot written and studied about the Rockefeller Foundation and its influence on research and uh, policy and politics and the Cold War. So there's this really interesting and quite long. I really like how in social science papers, they get to write these like giant footnotes because we don't get to do this in the STEM stuff. But man, every time I read one of these like law or humanities papers, I just, I feel like the footnotes are longer than the actual papers. So in one of these papers studying Cold War philanthropy and the Rockefeller Foundation, it talks about how prior to World War II, that the Rockefeller Foundation was really pro-radiation and was looking into and funding um, cyclotrons and very excited about it. And then after World War II happened, the president of the Rockefeller Foundation at the time, Raymond Fostick, who was part of Woodrow Wilson's administration, wrote, and I'm just going to read directly 
from it, from what he wrote, talking about how nuclear power had been, quote unquote, once celebrated as a mighty symbol, a token of man's hunger for knowledge, an emblem of the undiscourageable truth, search for truth, which is the noblest expression of the human in its uh, spirit, has today brought our civilization to the edge of the abyss. And man is confronted by the tragic irony that when he has been most successful in pushing out the boundaries of knowledge, he has most endangered the possibility of human life on this planet. The pursuit of truth has at last led us to the tools by which we can ourselves become the destroyers of our own institutions and all the bright hopes of the race. In this situation, what are we to do? Curb our science or cling to the pursuits of truth and run the risk of returning our society to barbarism. The mighty imperative of our time is not to curb science, but to stop war or to put it in another way, to create the conditions which will foster peace. That is a job in which everybody must participate, including the scientist. But the bomb on Hiroshima suddenly woke us up to the fact that perhaps we have very little time. That was the zeitgeist of the foundation. And as far as I understand it, this is obviously long before I was born, kind of the culture of the times. And again, just to um, really drive home how much influence. I, this is again, my, my reading of other people's interpretations. I, it's just hard for me to imagine how it once was. And even I'm probably part of the last generation that remembers how celebrities were before pre-internet because now there's so many, so many influencers and famous people anyway, because we all are doing literally what I'm doing, <clears throat> which is talking in microphone. But there's this, I really, I read the bulk of this dissertation in art history about how the Rockefeller family used art to kind of cement their place and power in the global environment. And so they really, interestingly, John D. Rockefeller Jr. actually bought the land that United Nations stands on until today. And then the, he got a special bill passed in Congress in order to write off his $8.5 million donation to the UN as a charitable deduction, which is pretty baller. I'm not going to lie. That's pretty impressive. And so the, in, in, while the foundation funds science and research moving away from nuclear energy, or I don't want to say painting it as, as bad or evil or whatnot, but at least moving away from it, then there's the art history part of it is that they are actively painting this picture of America and by extension, the Rockefellers, but America as the quote unquote head of the global family. And that really painting the horrors of nuclear weapons and that we are a, a peace loving nation. And it's just really interesting. And I guess this is probably still happening, but I don't know. We'll see what art history dissertations are written about in a hundred years and see who's doing that now that I don't even realize maybe about Facebook, but so there's really, again, it's this researcher at the university of Massachusetts Amherst that is publishing a lot of stuff on kind of the science that went into, um, the writing of these sort of linear non-threshold recommendations. And that's where Alara comes from, which is as low as reasonably allowed. And that really, wow. So if you start Googling these things, there is, there's a lot in this and it can get you into the cold fusion space and all these other things. But so when I was reading about this and reading through all these papers, there's this great, and it's in the slide that I'll put on Twitter, great sort of clip of right out of the New York Times. So there's, from the front page of the New York Times on June 13th, 1956, which is when the first BEAR committee came out with the linear no threshold model, the stuff of, it literally reads front page New York Times, scientists term radiation apparel to future of man. Even small dose can prove harmful to descendants of victim report states. A safety limit is urged and exposure check of all asked curb, curb backed on dental and medical x-rays. And again, this is back back in the day when 
newspapers ruled everything and this is the front page of the New York Times. And it can, I can only imagine just what I've heard stories and read documentaries and watched documentaries about what it was like living through this Cold War period and the fear. And it sounds awful. I guess in our generation, we have things after 9-11 and obviously the current COVID pandemic, but just decades of fearing war essentially. But to drill down essentially into the flawed science of how this LNT model came about, basically the argument is in addition to the fact that that leukemia paper inappropriately lumped control data together, there are several other problems about it, basically just due to the hubris of man, <laughs> more or less of, and this is I think many of us have seen this, that I know I personally got into science and medicine thinking that it was the pure pursuit of knowledge and the bettering of humanity. And oftentimes it is the bettering of our careers and just the search for shinier and shinier metals to put on our CVs. And uh, that's where a lot of this stems to. One of the, one of the flawed sort of things that was used to support this was that the journal Science published summary data by a guy named Kurt Stern from the Manhattan Project. And this data was not peer reviewed. The key data from that paper was never reported elsewhere. It's been missing for 70 years, but these missing findings were actually a big part of the basis for the BEAR genetics panel recommendations for the LNT model. And then it was also a mechanistic foundation for, a, for the seminal leukemia exposure paper. And so this is the first author of that leukemia paper is Lewis. In 1957, again, Science published this paper by Edward Lewis that ionizing radiation induced leukemia in a linear dose response pattern, and it received a significant status consequential to receiving a positive editorial by science's editor-in-chief, not a radiation biologist or anything by training or experience. And so basically this Edward Lewis guy was a fruit fly geneticist. He did not have any experience in epidemiology, cancer, radiation, chemistry, dosimetry, quantitative risk assessments, or anything of that nature. Yet he is the guy who published this radiation-induced cancer epidemiology paper. And so there's some back and forth emails. You can find all this stuff on the internet that there was a, on the editorial board of science at the time, a guy named Bentley Glass, who was a PhD student of Herman Muller, who I think he got the Nobel prize for radiation stuff in the forties. And he was a senior editor of science and basically really ideologically committed to the LNT model. And he saw a draft of that paper of this Lewis paper in 56, and then really just made sure to push it through and then Lewis went on television, he went on to meet the press, and then he went to testify at Congress and really just doing this media blitz of making sure that this was the accepted viewpoint. And this particular paper, this paper came out uh, in August, actually, August 20th, so a month ago, was this most recent paper looking at all these things about how these papers got published. And it ends with a passage about Thomas Kuhn arguing that science must be regarded as a human enterprise and not merely as some endeavor that is invulnerable to individuals, professional and personal ambition, bias and competitiveness, which I really like. This continually gets brushed under the rug, but I just distinctly remember maybe 10 or 15 years ago, sitting at a seminar where I can't remember the name of the lab that this came out of, but there's that paper that showed that the higher the profile of the journal, the higher the impact factor, the higher the rate of retraction was. And we don't really talk about this as much as we probably should, that because science is supposed to be pure, but it is really, it is not. There's a lot of careerism and has far reaching consequences. And unfortunately we've seen a lot of that over the past couple of years with the COVID pandemic. Then just to back out of, of that stuff and kind of 
um, get back into happier topics, nasopharyngeal radiation in children, much happier. So before I went down that rabbit hole of the linear no threshold model, the, there is just an astronomical use of low-dose radiation in the early half of the century of the 1900s for just everything. And the one that I find most interesting is probably nasopharyngeal radium irradiation. That was basically, it was invented by this guy named Samuel Crow in the first, I don't know if it was first done or first reported, but it was in 1926. And so basically it was placing radium needles and there's a picture of it. It's almost like a lobotomy, but if you went, the, if you put the needle down, not up, but it was used to treat adenoid related disorders, mostly otitis media. This was before like the, the tubes, the ostomy tubes were available and whatnot. So this paper that I'll probably read in a different podcast was from the Netherlands. So there's 24,000 children in the Netherlands treated with this treatment, but basically worldwide, there was, I love this estimate, it's quite the range. There is a half a million to 2.5 million children who underwent nasopharyngeal radium irradiation. And basically there has never been any sort of proof or data supporting that there was any sort of long-term deleterious effects of that, which is pretty shocking to me. And I had this, and again, I don't know how we all hear about the radium dial painters, but I missed this part in the radiation biology PhD curriculum. And so when I was double checking a lot of these things, um, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, National Institute of Health, actually put out a fact sheet. This was from the one I found was from 2003 on this. So literally from our own government, it talks about nasopharyngeal radium irradiation. Yeah, again, widely used through, from 1940 through the 70s. Again, reiterates that between half a million and two and a half million children were treated and at least 8,000 military personnel. And obvious concern being that you give children radiation and you'll cause cancer in them. But literally this paper... And, or this kind of official government sheet ends with, at this time, worldwide studies have not confirmed a definite link between nasopharyngeal radium or radiation exposure and any disease. And sure enough, so if you dig into that, they do cite some of their papers. There's my favorite thing ever. I'm sure it's all of our favorite things is a trend towards statistical significance that's used a few times. So there's like one of them, I think there was like three incidences of meningiomas in the irradiated group and two or one or something in the other. I don't know, but there's really nothing, which is shocking to me. You would assume, obviously I'm a proponent of things like low-dose radiation for arthritis, but even I would have thought we probably shouldn't be zapping children for tonsils. It really is. There's, they did it for maybe two and a half million children and really nothing happened. And I think we've got long-term follow-up. I know we always like to joke that radiation oncologists won't do anything without 10 years of follow-up, but so we've got 80 years of follow-up. And you would assume that, that there would be a whole bunch of throat cancers from these kids, but there is not. And that's, you can just double check on that. So other things was um, very interesting in the early, in the 1900s about all the things that radiation used to, to be treated for that we would never even consider doing today. So not only cancer and arthritis, but tendonitis, asthma, carbuncles and boils, sinusitis, inner ear infections, deafness, inflamed adenoids, pneumonia, pertussis, and gas gangrene. And there is a paper, I think it was published in the 40s, but it was basically showing that the mortality rate of gas gangrene was ridiculously significantly reduced with the introduction of x-ray therapy. And so basically, and I put the graph in from that paper, it it was pretty linear, pretty stable death from gas gangrene. And then once x-rays were used in the, in gas gangrene, and I think it's, uh, I'm going to squint here, 1923, it, so between 1900 and 1928, the mortality was 50%. And then 1928, the mortality rate was reduced to 5% by the use of x-ray 
therapy. I'm not too up to date on what the current modality of choice for gas gangrene treatment is. That's not my thing, but I presume hopefully we're better at it. But literally, so if you had gas gangrene before 1928, you had a 50% chance of dying. And then once they started using x-ray therapy to treat gas gangrene, the mortality rate fell to 5%. It was pretty crazy. I hadn't heard about that either. And then also on this slide, I had forgotten about this. We joke about this, but there was, uh, there was the case of Alzheimer's disease that was quote unquote treated with low-dose radiotherapy, the low-dose brain CT scans and improvement. And then now that's a, a pilot study. So I think that was just, I remember uh, talking about this um, recently. I think it was in the news again. But there's all sorts of these things that we'll hear about. I got to reread that one. I obviously, I don't know if people can hear in the hesitation of my voice. I love radiation with all of my soul. Clearly, I dedicated my life to it and got two doctorates about it. But even I have a hard time with this one. But we'll see. I don't know. Maybe come. Let's come back in five years. We'll see what I'm doing. So part of this kind of uh, the one that I really wanted to go back into was radium dial painters and radiation do sarcomas because those are we do heterotopic ossification all the time. Not all the time, but I was just talking to one of my friends about that last week. Um, there's always this fear around radiation-induced sarcomas from radiotherapy for heterotopic ossification. And it does tie back into the radium girls or the radium dial painters. And because I keep saying radium girls because that's the name of the book. But so the radium dial painters, there used to be a paint that glow in, glue in the dark, glowed in the dark because it was radium paint. And it was named Undark, which is a pretty cool name. It's all pretty cool, except for the whole, you shouldn't eat radium, in my opinion. And so the girls, the women who used to work in these factories or in the U.S. Radium Corporation were encouraged to lick the tips of their paintbrushes to paint the watch dials with Undark with the radium paint. And then they had a whole bunch of health effects. And so dialing back into that with the, it's interesting, going back into the linear threshold model, blah, blah, blah. So if you actually look at the data and the way this is always presented, at least to me, was that it's just so much, there's sarcomas, there's cancer everywhere from this. And so if you, there's a graph published from from the radium dial painters and what happened. And the threshold was 10 gray. So basically anyone who got exposed to less than 10 gray did not develop at least a sarcoma. There's other health effects, but there's no sarcomas noted before they hit the 10 gray threshold. And then there was a plateau from 10 gray to about 500 gray before there was an increased uh, sort of cumulative incidence in it. But and I forgot, maybe I was told this once upon a time, I thought this was much more widespread, but so there's 56 malignancies reported out of 1,468 radium dial painters. So that's an incidence of about 4%, I believe. But so fewer than I thought, obviously should have been zero, but I just, the way this is talked about, I had assumed that basically all of them had gotten sarcomas, which are at least a sizable proportion, but it was 56 out of almost 1,500. And so this, of course, sent me down my favorite rabbit hole. So back in residency, I've always been really interested in this stuff. So back in the residency, I took the teaching block of palliative and benign condition just because I, I really like this. And I always included a couple of slides on radiation-induced sarcomas and specifically as it pertained to heterotopic ossification. So if you go into the literature um, to 2012, there is one uh, reported case from radiation-induced sarcomas of heterotopic ossification. So the second one was published in 2012. And the first one was someone who had been treated with a total of 14 gray. So breaking that 10 gray threshold, they had received seven gray once and then had heterotopic ossification recurrence and received a second same uh, gray. So they had a total of 14. This one in 2012 was allegedly occurred after seven gray, after a single treatment for heterotopic ossification, which is pretty notable because um, you know, the, the radium dial painters was unfortunately 
uh, a much bigger sample size. And um, the data was pretty clear that the threshold for that was 10 gray. So this was notable because it was less than that. It was seven gray. And in the paper, because this was done in modern times, they have a picture of the, from it looks like Eclipse from the treatment planning system. And it's a view of, they had contoured out the region of greatest bony destruction, which the authors say is the epicenter of the tumor thought to be that really provide justification for that. It's just a logical extrapolation. So they contoured out the region of greatest bony destruction and they superimposed the DVH or sorry, the isodose line and dose color wash over that. And this area of greatest bony destruction was located at the edge of the radiotherapy field. So it included areas that received both at least 700 centigray and down to less than 100 centigray. 50% of the treated volume received 240 centigray. And then there was, again, given that it was at the edge of this treatment, there was a wide sort of variance. So it ranged basically from 21.8 centigray to 717 centigray. If you, that's pretty, pretty notable, right? Given that there's all this sort of kind of consternation over it, we don't really know the Dial painters was pretty big and the sample size was pretty clear to be 10 gray. And here we have kind of story of less than 10 gray radiation due sarcoma. And there's a proposed sort of model for it. Cause it's hard to tell. There's no signature for that. So how can you tell if a cancer was caused by radiation or not? You can't. So there are criteria about how you can claim that something is induced by radiation or not. If you go back up to the start of this paper, so the paper is titled Osteosarcoma Following Single Fraction Radiation Prophylaxis for Heterotopic Ossification. So the patient himself um, is a 26-year-old man who sustained multiple injuries in a motorcycle accident. These injuries were a right posterior hip dislocation and acetabular fracture, as well as an open right distal tibia and fibular fracture, which necessitated a below-the-knee amputation. And so is custom, not as is custom, but usually in these sorts of cases, this is literally to me the archetype HO case of guy in his 20s in a motorcycle crash. If you, uh, this is what I think about for HO, but I love this part. So tolerated radiation, he did have multiple revisions to the base of his right residual limb over the years for episodes of poor wound healing and necrosis, but otherwise had an uneventful course. So I don't know about you, but if I had to go back to the OR multiple times after my amputation because of things like necrosis, I would say that's eventful. But so three years after this, so that happens, right? So he has a motorcycle accident, gets radiation, but really has a ton of healing issues, has multiple revision surgeries, necrosis, blah, blah, blah. So three years after that event, he presented with a shooting painful neuroma of the right stump, BKA stump, and femoral ner nerve palsy. So they did a stump revision at that time. So three years after the inciting event, stump revision with neuroma excision, and then an intramedullary replacement of nerve endings, which I don't even know what that is. That sounds pretty neat. Um, but so that was three years after. So then seven years after, this is about 10, 10, 11 years after these inciting things, he came in with severe shooting pain along his right residual extremities. He had just switched to new prosthesis, blah, 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 workup revealed this sarcoma. That's the story, right? Is that this whole paper is about radiation-induced sarcoma following heterotopic ossification. Um, a big part of this that is not kind of the title or the abstract was, this was a guy who had a very severe injury necessitating an amputation with poor wound healing, necrosis, and then had to have more surgery a couple of years later. 
And, but somehow it is the radiation that caused the sarcoma. Something that always really stood out to me from the early days of medical school, M1 and M2, is that chronic wounds themselves cause cancer. Chronic wounds lead to malignant transformation. So the one that I remembered, the buzzword was margillin's ulcer. Uh, so, cause that was the, the person the, who first reported this was named Margellin and it was in 1827. 1.7% of chronic wounds undergo malignant degeneration. It shows up as early as 18 months after. Usually it's squamous cell carcinoma from chronic osteomyelitis, but then you also get from, and it's from these draining sinus tracts, but also from these tracks, this osteomyelitis, you get basal cell carcinoma, adenocarcinoma, fibrosarcoma, and plasma sedoma. And there's a whole bunch, there's a really cool paper in science that was recently just published equating metastatic disease to, to chronic wounds, which is, that's all related. But so there's many other types of wounds and things that can form into cancer. So uh, from this one paper I have in the PowerPoints of, in addition, malignancies such as sarcoma, lymphoma, melanoma, basal cell carcinoma, and squamous cell carcinoma have been reported to develop within the wound bed of chronic venous ulcers. The risk of developing one of these malignancies within a venous ulcer is 21%, which is insane. That's way higher than I would have guessed. Occam's razor here. We have a guy who had a motorcycle accident, surgeries, amputation, wounds, necrosis, who also happened to get seven gray of radiation, then had to, this have, took place for years. He eventually developed osteosarcoma in that amputated extremity. Occam's razor says that it's significantly more likely that it was caused by the chronic wounded inflammation, not the radiation. Even, I don't know, I've, and I'll talk about this in a second. I've read a lot of paper trying to guess the incidences of secondary malignancies from radiotherapy and even the worst one or the biggest risk. I have never seen one as high as 21% there is within a venous ulcer. So I would argue this is absolutely not an osteosarcoma caused by radiation. This is an osteosarcoma caused by chronic wound and inflammation from the traumatic incident. So I guess starting to circle back here, how did the culture get here? And so looking at the, when I was looking at the radium dial painters, the artwork for the book and the, I think it's also a musical for the radium girls is very amazing. And the sort of synopsis when you look up radium girls is women fighting to be treated humanely in the workplace narcissistic white men taking advantage of people and slut shaming those who speak up corporations falsifying science to serve their own needs we're talking of course about america in the 1920s this is the setting for the radium girls blah 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 and that's it's we're conflating a couple of things where there's the radiation part of it and then there's america in the 1920s and which was not a great place to be especially if you were a woman trying to live your life and have a job and stuff and the radiation gets wrapped up into that and even now if you think the story and it captures my attention of just thinking about licking a paintbrush with radium on it is a crazy thing to think about and it makes my skin crawl but it's hard to think about that here in 2022 knowing everything we know now and trying to contextualize it just goes back to like how was that viewed back then because this they were literally selling capsules of radium pills to take for your health. So it's just hard. And then there is everything else about that of how women were treated, arguably still today, but in the 1920s, certainly. And those are two separate things. And it just, it's uh, kind of like the, so the, I put posters up. So just kind of how pop culture treats these sorts of things. So there's Thank You for Smoking, which is the movie about kind of cigarettes and um, marketing after 
the or the cover up of cigarettes causing cancer for so many decades. Recently, Dope Sick, which is uh, wonderful. If you guys have not seen it, a Dope Sick on Hulu and the Oxycodone saga and the Sacklers and that whole thing. And then Fearing Loathing in Las Vegas and LSD. We have now, we have this push of a lot of people kind of recognizing the benefits of the psychedelic agents or things like LSD, not, uh, LSD in particular, that genre. And then ketamine and those things that were previously thought to be uh, terrible, uh, harmful to everyone, no, no good purpose. Now, nah, maybe that's not that correct. With dope sick, obviously, it goes without saying that the opioid crisis is definitely a crisis for uh, me in my practice. I use fentanyl patches all the time. Um, fentanyl patches in the correct uh, patient population are significantly better than pills or other things. And I, I constantly, I actually, the reason I remember dope sick was I literally had to have this conversation. I had to convince a young patient with just widely metastatic melanoma in excruciating pain that they weren't going to get addicted to despite what they've seen on the news and things like they needed and it's just an uphill battle and cigarettes there's no medical thing for cigarettes but so that's where radiation is where the health effects of radiation or radiotherapy for using things like obviously the doses we normally do for cancer but also the low doses for things like arthritis or plantar fasciitis or dupatrins or all those things Radiation stands alone as the one that has been weaponized. And so cigarettes, opioids, psychedelics, all those things, there is no nicotine bomb, right? Like radiation is invisible, which freaks people out. So it's this invisible thing of energy that has mysterious effects, which humans just, we don't operate well with that. I mean, if you look back at how people viewed electricity when it first came out, very similar to that, but they are recently 5, 5G. So radiation doesn't follow linear logic. And this is something I talk about in my clinic where we're talking about for prostate radiotherapy, right? There's conventional fractionation, which to me is 79.2 and 44 fractions or hypofrac, which is either 70 gray and 20 fractions or 60 gray and 20 fractions. And so whenever I kind of phrase to, to patients, like, oh, there's 44, there's 28, everyone to a T really logically thinks that we're just each, it's the same total dose but just bigger fractions. And it doesn't work like that. And because radiation in the rest of the world, two plus two equals four, not with radiation. And that freaks people out. And if you think about that, a project Pandora, so the, basically the psychological effects caused by that. So in the mid sixties in the, in the USSR, I guess the Soviets kind of ponied this low dose microwave generator at the American embassy for a, a long time. And that was Project Pandora. And it just really caused a lot of psychological damage, but zero physical damage. It's like humans, we just don't do well with these because it's not applicable to our scale, to human scale. And then again, Cold War, Cuban Missile Crisis, the Chernobyl, Three Mile Island, all these sorts of things was tied into radiation, which is unique in terms of medical therapies, basically. I think that our culture, media, news, conversations, how we think about things. There's just so much wrapped up in radiation. And specifically, I think one of the, one of the big staking points to people adopting low-dose radiotherapy for things like arthritis right now in their clinic is the concern over the risk of secondary malignancy. And so for me, this was all, I took a quick Google search to find a lot of these things. And radiation is a very powerful tool. And it's one of the oldest medical tools that we have where it was now we're coming up on 130 years of this. And we understand a lot less than we think we do. And specifically about the risk of carcinogenesis, where 
assuming you are a physician, if you're listening to this, but those of us who have the ability to use radiotherapy to treat other people, it is our sort of responsibility to look for signals in the noise. And if this is something you'd be interested in doing, but one of the sticking points, and again, specifically talking about low-dose radiotherapy for osteoarthritis. So if a sticking point is your concern about the risk of secondary malignancy, I would encourage you to revisit the primary literature. And I can just tell you, if you go through and teasing out, you know, removing the confounders. So the confounders of the stories of like sexism and greed from the dial painters or the horrors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki or the tension from the Cuban Missile Crisis um, or decades of fearing a nuclear war would break out at any minute. What do you love for data-wise? Data about the risk of secondary malignancies tells a very different story than pop culture or when people like to apply like mathematical models from theoretical space missions or generalizing anecdotal event. I know it's cliche now in 2022 to talk about seer studies, but I will for here. So in 2011, there was a paper that looked at almost 650,000 cancer patients who were five-year survivors and they were followed for 12 years. So of those 650,000 people, 9% of them developed a second cancer. It's about 60,000. Of those 60,000, 8% of the total in all the radiotherapy patients with greater than a year of survivors had what they called radiation-induced malignancy. Looking at was the second cancer in the same place with the first cancer. But so the, that's a risk of five excess cancers per 1,000 patients treated with radiotherapy by 15 years after diagnosis, 0.5%. And which is clear, that's what I normally been saying is point the risk of secondary malignancy from therapeutic radiation for malignancy, meaning anywhere from 50, 60, 70 gray, it's about 0.5 to 1%. And in a controlled environment with modern equipment and treatment planning, inappropriately selected patients, and again, talking specifically about arthritis, for me, that would be someone who's at least 50 years old. The actual scientific literature and the data would suggest the risk of secondary malignancy for three gray to a joint is exceedingly small. Some would say non-existent, but exceedingly small. The riskiest part of doing that is in basically getting in your car to drive to and from the, and that's the point of talking about this and over the coming years of publishing things or doing various cooperative groups or whatnot is to re-examine our own thoughts and emotions and biases about these things. And can we do things for people? Can we take a bigger role in medicine? This is the oldest sort of technology out there and half the rest of the world has been doing it while we just sit and are scared of radiation because America's got a couple hangups. But so anyway, I'm going to, I it really, you guys should read some of these papers. They're crazy. I'll post all these up on Twitter and Figshare. And I'm really interested to see where this stuff on the papers that was published in the forties and fifties that led to the linear and threshold model being adopted. That's a really interesting space. And so I'm excited to see where that goes. So anyway, thanks for listening to my rambling and just go read some papers. Thanks for listening to this episode of Out of the Basement. You can claim CME for this and any other episode by following the link in the show notes. You can find me on Twitter with at Dr. Bechta or visit www.bechtamd.com. If you like this content, please let us know by rating and following us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. If there's any topic you want to hear covered, or if you want to come on and talk about something yourself, reach out and let us know, and we will make it happen. Otherwise, talk to you next time.